Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Hey everybody, this is Trevor. Uh, it's January 2024. Um, I'm coming up on my six-year anniversary of being diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Um, just take a minute to to reflect on that because plenty of times after I got diagnosed and during my surgeries, during during my chemo, during my immunotherapy, um, getting to 2024 seemed pretty unlikely. So I'm just pretty blessed to, to see 2024. Also, uh, hopefully it'll be a good year for me because the even years so far have been better than the odd years generally. Um, except for 2018, like fuck that year. Um, but, um, 22 and 20 were pretty much better than like 21 and 23 in terms of (laughs) going through this cancer shit. So let's hope 24 is, is a good one. Um, today I'm doing a solo show. I'm just going to do a reading from my journal. Um, I honestly don't do that much writing anymore these days. Uh, I used to write a lot. I used to journal a lot. I put most of my writings together in my book a couple. Wow. That's just over a year now, but I don't know. I, I don't know if it's just like the, the cumulative stress and fatigue. I just, I like to podcast. I like to work on man up to cancer. Like, um, as the CEO of the nonprofit now, there's just a lot of fundraising to do and business work to do and leadership to do and, and things that don't relate to content creation. And, and I just, yeah, I I just am not really called to do much writing. And part of me feels, you know, bad about that. Like, cause it's always something that was part of my life and, and a big part of my life for a lot of my years. But, but then I just got to remember that for many years of my life, it hasn't been, I've been focused on other things. So trying to give myself grace there and, and not go to my go-to, which is, uh, I should be writing more because why, why go to that judgment? Right. Um, but I did do some writing after my last surgery. So I had a I had my seventh major surgery in November. This was the biggest of my surgeries so far to clear out um, several spots of cancer throughout my abdomen. Um, and yeah, I just, I probably like a week or two after coming home, I just did some stream of consciousness stuff. And I thought I'd invite you into that because. I just think it's helpful. Like one of the things that I promised to do when I started this whole man up to cancer thing was, I mean, the real, the, the very essence of it was to share what it's really like to go through this cancer experience. And sometimes what it's really like is best expressed through that internal, um, you know, a walk through my stream of conscious and showing you some of the thoughts that I go through and some of the memories I have and, and some of the emotions that I have. So, um, so that is what I am going to do today. Um, so this is called hospital purgatory, a post-surgery journal. 
Some people who have never had cancer in their bodies tell people like me to stop thinking about it. After the scans, the blood draws, the surgeries, they send me out into the sunshine and tell me not to think about it, as if my world looks anything like theirs. I realized a while ago that I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop those questions from repeating in my head. I know the tortured corridors of my brain. So I lean the fuck into it. I say, bring it on. Let me ask the question, how long can I do this? So many times that it becomes a mantra and I tell myself that this would make those cancer muggles insane. And only I'm strong enough to keep asking the question and turn it into a raging inferno of motivation. But yeah, the stress doesn't go away. It's rust. You can cover it up, bondo that shit, but you know what's under there. You know the frame is still compromised. And after 2,130 days of stress, this frame is compromised. The scars and adhered tissues and severed muscles and nerves of seven open abdominal surgeries. After 2,130 days of stress, this brain is compromised. There are some moments, beautiful moments, in which I'm right here, right now, grounded in the present, aware of my living breath and the sensation of my feet on the wood floor, the sensation of the heat from the wood stove, Other times, though, I'm like Billy Pilgrim and I've come unstuck in time. Sometimes in a dream, sometimes even when I'm awake, I find myself back on that first surgical table, staring up into a cluster of the five brightest lights I've ever seen, mask over my face and breathing in the sweet anesthetic while surgical techs inspect my IV lines and double count the instruments that will cut me open. Big breaths, Trevor. We're going to take good care of you. Ten. Nine, eight. Other times I'm back on my most recent surgical table just a few months ago. The same buzz of activity. Are these the same techs? Are they even real at all? Or is this my third surgery? Or the fifth? They swirl and mesh together with an antiseptic smell. Muffled voices. The starch of sheets. The constant beeps of the heart. And respiratory monitors. The same voice in my head telling me, You're going to see Sarah, Sage, and Elsie on the other side of this. This team knows what they're doing. They do this all the time. You're not dying today. My body is strong. My body is strong. My body is strong. And each time after the blackness, I am born again to the waiting world, disoriented, in pain, and with a shock of recognition that I didn't die. I can't put the exhaustion of this into words. But I can tell you about the hospital after my last surgery. I guess I need to write about that. After counting down while breathing deep the anesthesia, the next thing I remember is waking up and feeling like I'm in an elevator. It's the PACU post-surgical unit, and I'm in a small room that barely fits the surgical bed that I'm in. There's a nurse, a guy in his mid-twenties, brown hair, mustache, and he's trying to untangle some of the cords, wires, and tubes that I'm connected to. I have four IV lines and different veins in both arms. I have 12 wires that are the leads for my heart monitor. I have a nasogastric tube, we call it the NG tube, inserted through my nose and it goes down to my stomach. I'm barely awake and this nurse is a bull in a china shop. Without care, he pushes my right arm so he can move a wire. The pain is searing. I later learned that my arms hurt so bad because they kept them in the same position for the entire eight hours I was in surgery. I make an audible gasp. I see my wife, Sarah, sitting in a tiny chair on my left. She smiles at me. 
other nurses pop in to tell the bull nurse something and his response every time is cool beans cool beans i had just come out of one of the biggest surgeries a human can have and this guy keeps roughing me up he doesn't even really acknowledge that i've woken up that i'm conscious that i could probably use a little comfort in this moment the dissonance hurts my brain i recognize pain but i try to focus on sarah she's lost her color Unlike most of my prior surgeries, the team didn't clean me up before bringing me to the recovery unit. I realized that my arms and gown are streaked with blood, especially around my right arm near the large arterial line. Cool beans, cool beans. What the fuck is wrong with this guy? I can tell Sarah's going to pass out, but he keeps, but she keeps saying she's fine. Then she's not fine. She's slumped to the ground and the bull nurse calls out for some assistance. He's annoyed. My wife, who has endured cancer with me for more than five years, has passed out, and the nurse is annoyed. I get angry, but I can't even really speak. Another nurse tends to her, and Sarah being Sarah, she insists she's fine. After a while, I remember asking if Cusack was happy. That's my surgeon. Sarah tells me, yes, he was happy. That's really all I needed to know, because if Cusack wasn't happy, well then that puts me in a bad spot. If he's happy, then he probably didn't run into any surprises, like cancer spreading into places we didn't see on the scans. She said he was in there probably longer than he thought, but yeah, he's happy. The next several hours, I slip in and out of sleep. Sarah kisses my forehead, and she leaves me for the night. I just pray she can get back to the hotel safely and get some rest. She looks so tired. I wake to the night nurse and he is kind and competent. He helps me get through the night as every 20 to 30 minutes I have gagging episodes and vomit around my NG tube. I think I might choke, but competent nurse helps me through it. My vital signs are rock solid the whole time. I have no issues with my lungs like I've had in prior surgeries. They are loving my oxygen levels. My body is strong. My body is strong. My body is strong. I have some shooting chest pains, which I think is weird, and I keep reminding myself that no matter what I'm feeling, that it was going to be normal for this type of thing. And that if it wasn't, they're going to just do their job. I just focus on breathing, just breathing and getting through minute to minute. You're just not in your normal mind frame because you have this loss of control or loss of the illusion of control because you don't know how your body is going to react to this major surgery. You don't know if you're going to have some massive complication or infection or whatever, or if you're going to be the simple case the one that doesn't require much of their attention. At some point, they wheel me up to a surgical recovery floor, Allison 7. In terms of pain at this point, it's more like my body feeling shocked by everything it's just gone through. I'm just kind of in and out of what you might call the shared world, like me relating to you, having a conversation and sharing the same space, having a shared understanding of that space. That isn't really here for me yet. I'm more internally focused. I'm aware of time passing. I'm aware of pain. I'm aware of nausea. I'm also aware that I don't feel in acute danger, which is comforting. I realize I'm in Allison, room 708B, and I have a roommate with lots of serious issues. He has open wounds, fistulas, fissures, an ostomy, possibly a blood infection. His team is trying to care for these sores by cleaning, debriding, cauterizing, dry packing. And for most of the next... Several days, our room has the stench of burned flesh. Sometimes I wake and Sarah is there and I feel intense comfort, 
but also sadness because I have to be internal right now in a different place from her, even though she is right next to my bedside. The sounds of Alice and Seven are constant and oppressive. Beyond the dozen or so alarms that go on regularly in the room, there are alarm boxes throughout the hallways. Every time an alarm is sounding in one of the rooms, for example, if someone's heart monitor has come loose, all of the hallway alarms sound, letting the nursing staff know. On top, on top of that, the nurses are short-staffed, and many of them are just out of nursing school. The lead nurse on my floor is 25 years old. Most of the other nurses are younger. Many of the experienced nurses burned out and quit during the pandemic. Some of the ones here now are wide-eyed and overmatched by the tasks at hand. Patients in many of the rooms call out for help around the clock. If you're not having an acute problem, which I do not currently, it can take an hour, maybe two hours to see a nurse for help. With the constant alarms and patients calling out, a place that is supposed to be for healing has become a place where patients are never at rest. A few doors down, all night I hear a man asking for mercy. I think about the question people sometimes ask me, how do you pass time in the hospital after your surgeries? When it's a surgery like this, something so intense, physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything, and it involves all that you have, you don't need anything to pass the time. In fact, you don't pass the time. Time passes you. You can't watch TV, you can't read, you can't play a game. You are in survival recovery state, and you're getting through minute to minute, and that's the only thing you're capable of doing. Without the ability to engage with others or occupy your own mind with the distractions, you essentially become a passenger and witness to the trauma of where your body has been. I think about the formal description of my surgery, cytoreduction surgery with a midline incision from below the navel to the sternum, plus HIPEC, hyperthermic intraperitoneal chemotherapy, which is heated chemo circulated through the abdomen for 90 minutes. But let's keep it real. I was cut apart, pried open, cut some more, burned, then poisoned, then sewn back together, and left to heal. So there is no getting around the brutality of that. Brutality to keep me alive, yes, but brutality nonetheless. These are techniques we deploy in the hopes of killing disease, but not the person on the table. Cut, poison, burn. In life, in the history of humans, sometimes that's what it takes to die, and sometimes that's what it takes to live. It may be done in a controlled environment. The mortality rates may be low now. But I've just been subjected to a life and death situation. And you have to understand what that does to a person's cognition state and emotional state. Never mind the medications that are flowing through my IVs. It's very interesting to me to think about where a human goes in these circumstances. My first few surgeries were much more fear-based. It was me hanging on to fear and hanging on to the construction of reality as I conceived it rather than letting go, almost letting go of any type of feeling or emotion and just being a human in that life-death pendulum with no construct to it, with no defining it or classifying it with language. Here on Allison 7, surgery number 7, I feel myself letting go of fear and I have a keen awareness of my body just doing the work of the body without the mind doing much of anything at all. I'm aware that I'm not going to be comfortable. Much of the pain is controlled through an epidural pain pump, but the pain and nausea are relentless no matter what position my body is in. Of course, I keep looking for that change of position that will deliver a bit of comfort, and sometimes I get it, but the thing that fucks with you is how little time you get relief. 
I keep moving my arms, my legs, my head, but I'm also still tied to what feels like a hundred wires, tubes, and cords. The hard fact is that you're just not going to get lasting relief until a long time from this point. What I'm getting at is that in these first days, the first four, five, six days, even more of a recovery like this is a constant battle of what you can endure, how much you can endure without there being much change when all you want is relief. No one wants to be in this situation where the only thing for you to do is lay there and feel the sensations happening to your body and either live or not live. That's a pretty stripped down place to be. In some circumstances, there is no solution to our discomfort. There's no external solution to change those circumstances. I think that for me, having gone through so many surgeries and having done similar things so many times, there is a type of adjustment happening of just being able to let that go and be in suffering and not have it be so terrible or scary. It's hard to articulate, but I guess I'm saying these same past circumstances would have caused me to suffer more and be in much more distress in the past. I guess that's experience. I guess I'm proud of myself, even though I probably shouldn't be because I really didn't have anything to do with it. It was just that I've gone through enough at this point to have settled into suffering more than I ever could have before, whether it's physical pain or fear or boredom. And there's strength in that, even if I'm just forced into that. And that's the response. It is dimension expanding when you realize that you can continue to suffer and not suffer as your body is in this balance. The people who have never had cancers in their bodies tell people like me to stop thinking about it. After the scans, the blood draws, the surgeries, they send me out into the sunshine, tell me not to think about it as if my world looks anything like theirs. I realized a while ago that I can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop these memories from repeating in my head. So I lean the fuck into it. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to get behind our mission, you can connect with us, subscribe to our email list, and check out our other content at manuptocancer.com. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack doors are always open.